delighted to have you with us. Brad, you're going to be our host this afternoon and we're going to let you take over. So we'll see you guys in about 50 minutes. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Francisque, and, and thank you, John, as well. And I uh, want to say welcome to everyone for joining us here uh, for Industry Week with EPAR Trade. Um, we are going to talk to CP Carrillo here this afternoon. We have a couple of guests, uh, both Matt Herrera from Outcast and from CP Carrillo. Uh, joining us as well is Rick Panaton. And uh, I'll introduce, uh, first of all, our two panelists, but also want to let you know that if you have a question for our panelists, you can use the chat feature down below. And through that chat feature, we'll be asking the questions to our panelists and getting the answers that you need. And also want to remind you that you can always go to eparttrade.com if you need to find out any more information and click on the CP Carrillo product page and you can contact with them directly and actually get more information that you want. So first of all, gentlemen, uh, welcome and thank you so much for being a part of this week. This is a pretty special one with Epart Trade. Hopefully everyone's doing well. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. Awesome. Well, well Rick, yeah, no problem, Matt. Um, Rick, let's just go ahead and start with you and, and let you talk about the company just a little bit. I know CP Carrillo has been around for 57 years now. Uh, you do mm -hmm. pistons and connecting rods and really support the racing industry. So if you would, just give us an overview of what you guys do and what you have to offer. Well, CP was actually started about uh, 22 years ago in uh, 1998, and then we acquired Carrillo in 2007, I believe. So we produce... Uh, Pistons, when I started there in 2001, we were doing mainly uh, uh, NASCAR Cup, Bush, uh, truck motors, a lot of high-end uh, drag race things, and um, had originally planned just to, to do that kind of business. And then later on, when the market took a dump in 2008, we just decided to go, let's get into everything. So that was a, that was a good decision, and we're happy we did it. We also came up with a uh, sportsman. Um, based or sportsman priced line we call the bullets and we can talk about those a little bit um, neat thing about the bullets is they're not made uh, overseas um, in a I don't know any any better word than to make but a cheap manner they're still the, the forgings are forged in America they're machined on all the same equipment there at the facility in Irvine California and they're a real high-end part and a great um, uh, value for the dollar is there any type of racing series that you guys don't support? I mean, is it pretty much anyone who builds an engine, you're going to have something for them? Yeah, for the most part. We, um, we've dabbled a little bit in two-stroke, and uh, we, we got back off that for a while, and I don't know if, if the plans are to get back from that, but we do a lot of four-stroke motocross stuff, um, water sports, diesel, um, import for sure, uh, Domestic V8, uh, we've done V8 supercar stuff in Australia for a number of years. So across the board, we've, we've kind of got it covered. And we do anything now. I mean, uh, you know, the 350 truck motor for a tow truck, we've got a piston for it. You know. But it's a, a nice quality piece. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, Matt Hacera, owner of Outcast, tell us a little bit about, uh, about you, about Outcast, and, and what you guys do to support the industry. Well, Outcast Racing Engines, we do a lot of dirt sprint car and late model engines. Um, majority is 360, 410 sprint car engines and 305 stuff. But uh, we do a lot of other things. I help a couple teams. I'm a engine guy with Elite Motorsports with the Pro Stock stuff and 
So all that kind of plays into my engines and Rick Pannington is responsible for keeping everything in the combustion chamber. So that's kind of why we're here. But uh, Outcast, I started Outcast five years ago now and we're slowly gaining traction. I got hurt a year ago in a car accident. And so we're just kind of coming back from that. But we've had a couple good engines out there and some big, big series cars running up front. So uh, we're just kind of waiting for our time to get in the limelight, I guess. But Trying to build engines for different series and then be on the road with drag racing and, and everything that you're doing. I mean, obviously a busy person and recovering uh, from your accident, as you mentioned. How hard is that to balance and manage all of that? Um, it's pretty hard to balance it. The only way I can say to somebody if they want to do this is you definitely just can't have a day job. Because <laughs> um, it, it feels like I don't go to work every day. It's like going to going to your playground, and that definitely helps. But there are some things in the 500-inch eras that are very challenging to overcome. Um, even in our sprint car engines, there's some things that we're struggling with right now um, that we're seeing in different materials and stuff that just kind of poke their head out in durability testing. And that's kind of what we're trying to keep our finger on. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, Rick, um, when it comes to uh, everything that you guys are doing over at CP Carilla, you mentioned uh, manufacturing um, right there in Irvine, California. How important is it for you guys to be able to design something, manufacture it all, be in the same place as opposed to shipping things out to overseas and waiting for things to get back and forth? Uh, it's a big advantage. And that's one of the neat things about having Carrillo in-house. Uh, when we first purchased that company, they were still down in San Clemente. And um, we had an extra, I think it was 10 or 15,000 square feet in our building, you know, that was there for future growth. And we were able to move them inside of that building and have both CP and Carrillo under one roof. And it's a slick deal because if someone like Matt's going to order a set of uh, connecting rods and the pistons, the design team can, for the connecting rod side is going to want to know the piston, wrist pin, ring, and uh, pin lock weight so that they can calculate um, and design the rod around the RPM of the intended assembly. And then also the, I call it, uh, for lack of a better term, the crush or the press against the piston rod pin assembly as it comes up on the compression stroke and the power stroke. So um, I'm able to model the piston in SolidWorks and give them the real uh, gram weight of the finished piston within a gram, you know, plus or minus a gram, rings, pins, all that, and they can design the rod accordingly. Yeah, as far as being able to design both of those together, um, you know, how much of an advantage is it to really be able to marry up those two pieces that are pretty integral to the internals? It's a big deal because whether it's aluminum piston or aluminum rod or a steel rod, we make both. Um, by design, and we're able to also use a finite element analysis where we'll take the part and put it in a uh, you know, kind of a real world pressure test to see where the part is getting upset or where it's happy at. And we can, many times we can change the design to improve the part while also taking material away and lightening the part. Where, you know, before all the, the advent of this kind of equipment and uh, ability, it was more of a guess and an educated guess for past experience. So, um, and then you get the real world thing. I remember a couple of years ago, we were trying to find uh, ignition pressures from a typical pro stock engine. And 
the team that had won the 2009 championship, the, his engine builder, they told us, I think, I want to say it was in the 1400 plus uh, PSI range. And one of the rod engineers said, that's impossible. Those rods would never live at 1400 PSI. Well, they did and they lived great. They, they ran them the whole year. So we're able to take our thermometer, you know, so to speak of, you know, this is where it's going to die and this is where it's going to live happily and raise that whole bar. So it's, it's the, Computer modeling, but also real-world um, uh, report back from a guy like Matt that's out, you know, in the field. He's at the, ra- the dirt track races and the sprint car races on a Saturday night, and he knows what these parts are actually going through. And, and I, one of the reasons I I always try to align ourselves with really good engine builders is they're they're a very integral part of the team with us, and um, we get good feedback from the racetrack you know, versus what we're modeling in the computer and then we can come to the best part from uh, information from both sides. When it comes to that and all the development, Rick, if I'm coming to you as a customer and, you know, I do this type of racer and I have these specific needs for my engine, you know, first of all, I'll assume that you probably already have some type of a solution for that to get me started. But if I have something that I need further, um, how would I deal with you guys in development and, and different things like that of what I might need? You know, typically we would have been down that road, you know, once, you know, prior. And so we've got a good place to start from just from years of experience. And the, um, not just, you know, CP I mentioned is about 22 years old, but the, uh, the combined uh, experience of our team is probably near 75 to 80 years old because they, there's, you know, Corolla was started back in the 60s. And we've got guys that started at other piston companies back in the 60s and some of them retired now, but it's a we've got a really good team of guys that have had a lot of time in this industry. So we'd have a good place to start off from. And then if you wanted to run, uh, you were trying to run an ASCS 360 motor, you know, the 11,000 instead of nine or 10,000, well, then it's going to take some changes in the valve train, obviously, and then also in the piston and rod assembly. So at least we have a jump off place to start from. And Matt, for you on that end, and we'll get to some questions here in a moment. And again, if you have a question, just use the chat feature and type it in and uh, and we'll ask them. But Matt, for you, uh, whether you be building sprint car engines or working on the pro stock, whatever it might be, how is it working, being able to work integrally with CP Carrillo and to get exactly what you need and the most performance out of it? So they make my job about as easy as it can be with a piston. I know a lot of guys probably say that about their piston guys, but like Rick says, they have a lot of experience with anything that you can think of. They've, they've built it all from two strokes to, you know, Kubotas. They could build anything. They could build a piston for it probably better than anybody in my opinion, but um, they're, they never stop FEA analysis testing. It's always trying to make it better. We're always working on ring grooves. We're always trying to make the piston lighter when we can, but still maintain some ductility. Um, there's this never ending cycle when we're chasing for more ring seal and more power in these engines. And I can tell you, I dynoed, I just finished my best 360 engine um, Friday. It was Black Friday. And that was, we are 140 better than when I started with Rick at CP. And I can't believe how much of that I attribute to the piston and ring and the hone. It's all, there's a lot of it in pistons and honing. Um, like this piston behind me here, this is one of our older 410s, but it's a piston guided piston. Um, 
This one came out of an engine about 11 races on it. The skirts, they look beautiful. And that was just kind of an example of when something's happy, as after you've worked on it long enough, you can make some pretty light parts live fairly wow. well in a dirty environment. That's a pretty good testimonial. We do have a question from the chat. Uh, it says, CP, I have a question for my customers in my shop. I deal with a lot of Stroker 383 Mopar and Chevy, as well as small block Chevy and Mopar blocks, everything from cars to mud bog trucks, as well as 602 and 604 crate for dirt track. What are the major differences in the domes and pistons built? I always push your products in-house. Well, when it comes to dome design, um, I always call it a pretty dome for lack of a better term, but uh, I have a, this is an old 427 closed chamber, super stock drag race piston. And you see it's fairly straight up and down around the backside. It's got sharp edges on it. It's got a big lump of material right in front of the exhaust valve pocket here. And that would give you maximum compression in that class, but I don't think it would run all that good because this section of material in the front here gets in the way of the air and fuel coming off the back of the intake valve during the overlap stroke, or what many refer to as crossflow. So it's been my experience to get rid of this amount of dome. You pick up crossflow, you help the exhaust uh, port drag on the intake better during overlap, and the intake port flows better because it's got a better signal from the exhaust going out the exhaust valve during overlap. So um, here's a this is a little bit different head. This is an SR20, but you can see the radius corners. You can see, a, I colored it in so it's easy to see, but there's a flare laid back area in the intake pocket to help facilitate crossflow. This piece of material in front of the exhaust valve pocket, we've knocked it out of the way. So I always call this quantity and that's quality. And the quality of the dome shape will always get into the winter, winter circle better than quantity. And many times, some of these uh, max fit domes, by the time you hand fit them and make them fit, they're, they can be as little as a CC better of compression ratio, but it's a very inefficient extra CC of compression ratio. So we're always working on efficiency of the dome versus the combustion chamber, thinking about air and fuel coming off the back of the valve during overlap, thinking about the cross flow part of the piston and the quench pad, you know, to help this thing get on the exhaust side when it needs to. And um, they, uh, when we can, if the customer uh, has a little extra time or he's got the budget, we can do a 3D uh, digitizing of the combustion chamber and or mold and then make a uh, contoured pit, you know, 3D piston to fit the combustion chamber like a glove. Whereas these two, we call this a 2D dome. You have a primary cut around the outside and there's a secondary cut used around the exhaust area. It's just a, it's a little bit more time consuming to make 3D parts, but it's definitely a better way to go. And if you don't have the budget for a 2D part, we can still radius all the corners and flare out the intake valve and you know, help the piston uh, have a better relationship with the combustion chamber and the air fuel charge and the exhaust getting out. What's a typical turnaround on something like that? Well, during the busy part of the season, um, we try to keep it at three weeks, but it can get up in the four to five week range just because of the holidays. And um, the um, even with all this COVID stuff going on, we've had a really good year uh, comparatively. Not, you know, 2018 was probably the high mark and 2019 was very good also. But um, 
normally this time of the year is when we get a lot of sample work to do 3D work. We get a lot of molds, a lot of combustion chambers, and it is, you know, a little bit tedious. And um, so the turnaround can, it's usually would be in the five to six range on something like that. And if the, if the customer's got a job number uh, from prior, it might only be uh, two to three weeks to get it turned around because it's, you know, typically on that, like if Matt had a motor back in from last year, it'd be a, maybe a slight bore tweak and a compression height tweak and off you go. There's not a lot of re-engineering going on. We can get them in the shop and get them, start making chips right away. Now, how do you, do, you know, there's always a compromise in racing, as, as I'm sure both of you guys know, um, you know, whether you want some power, longevity, or somewhere you're trying to find the balance in exactly what you need. Um, and Rick, I'll ask you first, you know, someone might come to you and say, I need something that's going to be good for a couple of races. Someone might come to you and say, I, I, I want this engine to last the whole season. You know, what kind of compromises, right. what are we dealing with? How do you maximize that form? Well, it's good that you asked that because, um, Everybody is always chasing that last gram, you know, how can we make the piston lighter? And sometimes I joke that there's, there's guys out there that think, you know, the last five grams is five horsepower, and that's not the case. You need to build the piston to live in, in the environment it's going to be in, and it's going to weigh what it's going to weigh. You know, many guys would, would say, well, a five gram lighter piston will accelerate off the corner quicker. Well, I'm not so sure about that. Um, if the motor makes better power because the part is more stable, then I don't, you know, I don't see that as being true. And I had an interesting talk with a cup engine builder years ago, and they would always put very heavy assemblies in super speedway motors, so they would lose, they wouldn't lose as much RPM going in the corner when the, the car gets loaded very hard from the centrifugal force. And they would put a very lightweight assembly in a short track motor because they wanted to accelerate off the corner quickly. Well, they got stuck. Uh, didn't order parts on time, and all they had was a super super speedway assembly for Bristol, which is um, you know an old uh, a little horseshoe, uh, very tight circle track. And he said that thing hauled the mail. The only the the only complaint the driver had was he had to use the brake a little bit more because the engine didn't have a good engine braking with the heavier assembly. But he said it dynoed fantastic and it raced really good. But the driver just had to use the brake pedal a little bit more. So. Um, and most customers are really good, and in, in, in Matt's a, a good example. You know, he'll say, "Hey, can we get it to this gram? Let's say 400 grams." And I'll come back and say, "It's 415." And I, you know, this, that's it. If we go any lighter, this thing's going to start getting angry at me on the FDA test. So let's fly with it. He's good with it. Matt, how about you? I mean, if you're building engines for David Gravel or Sammy Swindell, or you know, maybe you're thinking about a bigger track or a smaller track or a driving style and all of that. How do you find that balance? How do you manage that compromise with what you can do with CP? Well, that's where I rely on Rick. I mean, I, I have kind of what I think we need to get away with. And in the end, I, I let Rick make the final decision, but we, we pretty much work fairly easy because we're both on the same spectrum as we don't believe in shaving five grams to, to save some weight for longevity. We're, pretty safe on weights and pens and rods and all that stuff. And they can come about as close as you can get on how light it can be before it will fail with how many, how much cylinder pressure you're making. Um, I do know firsthand experience their FEA analysis is within a percent of where the failure is going to happen for cylinder pressure. It's pretty accurate. All right, we've got another one from the chat. And again, if you have a question, just hit the uh, chat feature at the bottom and you can type it in. 
this one says, can Rick elaborate on the effectiveness of piston coatings? I have some opinions there and uh, Matt can chime in too because he's actually uh, learned some stuff that's you know re-educated me too. But um, typically on skirt coatings, um, I personally have never seen an ABA test where the motor made more power the skirt coatings unless it was extremely too tight for piston wall clearance, and which doesn't really happen too often. Um, a good skirt coating, they have abradable coatings now that uh, like line to line uh, makes, and I've had really good report from customers that really like that. Um, sometimes we can build a piston with 8,000 piston to wall clearance and, and they'll put 4,000 to coating on it. So the motor goes together at 4,000 fold and it'll basically scrub the coating away until the piston's in a happy spot, as simple as that sounds. So uh, the biggest benefit I've seen to skirt coatings is if you've got a nice set of pistons, but the piston, the wall is getting on the high side, you can you can enlarge the piston diameter with coating and let it find its its new happy home with an abradable coating. Um, if when the engine's on the dyno or in the car, after it's been put in the car and someone forgets to put oil back in the engine or put water in it, or turn the water on in the dyno, or turn the water pump on in the car, and you fire it, you know, within 30 seconds or so, oh, you know, what am I doing here? And you shut it off. Most times the skirt coating will save the parts where a, a naked piston is more than likely going to die. The uh, On the thermal barriers, my own experience is that typically the exhaust temperature goes up and the power goes down. So, it's supposed to be a thermal barrier or reflector, and that's what it is. It deflects the heat right out of the exhaust pipe, and that's why the exhaust temperature goes up. And that heat energy is being wasted out the pipe, not being used to make power. Um, many guys will argue for coating as a, a, um, a protectant. So in case the tune-up gets too far out of where it ought to be, it doesn't burn the piston. Well, if you don't do the combustion chamber, and you, you get the tune-up in a place that wants to poke a, burn a hole in the piston, it'll burn the chamber instead um, if the piston's coated and it's much more costly to repair the cylinder head. So in, in some instances, like uh, power adder racing, um, many of my customers, they like having a small area in the piston. When the tune-up gets upset, it'll put a hole in the piston and tell them it's upset instead of trashing the cylinder head. Um, we had a guy a couple years ago with an engine master's engine and he coated it to, to put the thermal barrier on the tops. And he was pushing the compression ratio pretty hard on a pump gas motor, but uh, he burned part of the coating off the piston, sunk the piston and burned the combustion chamber out. So it's just, you know, I'll probably get some ugly phone calls from the coating people, but I just have not seen, you know, big horsepower gains between the two. Um, I'm totally cool with the skirt coating as a, as a protectant and the thermal barrier thing um, still need to be convinced. That's just my own personal opinion. I know Matt's got some experience with that too. Yeah, Matt, you almost smiled there for a second when he was talking about maybe forgetting to put oil in it or forgetting to turn the water on. Any any stories you want to share? <laughs> be surprised at what customers are capable of. And <laughs> some engineers. Uh, but yeah. for you, Matt, I mean, to, to, to continue with that question, as far as coatings go or anything, is there any place where you see benefits or detriments? Um, the skirt coating, in my opinion, it's a good insurance policy. It definitely keeps the cross hatch and the bore longer and along, you know, an endurance engine, like a cup engine or something that's got a long, a long time, run a long time with high oil temp. 
Um, there is some anti-scuffing, but not a whole lot. There's just some protection left. The thermal barrier, I don't, I used to be a fan of it. Um, I've gotten some mixed feedback on them. We've, we've been doing a lot of Brunel checking crowns, the pistons in the last couple of years, and the thermal barrier seems to retain naturally a little more heat in the piston, I suppose, because it's a little warmer and they end up a little softer before you season them out. So that can hurt longevity. So we've kind of gotten rid of our thermal barriers on the crowns of them anymore, but we, we run coated skirts and everything yet. So. Okay, thank you. Thank you. All right, uh, another question. Uh, are hard anodized top rings worth it? Rick, you want to take that? Well, I'm not aware that anybody actually hard anodizes the, the ring, but the ring groove, yes, that's been going on for some time. And yeah, top ring lands. I'm sorry. I missed yeah. the word there. And, ju and just not to be persnickety, but where the groove goes is the ring groove. The land is the material between the deck and each ring groove. And I've even heard guys call them the ring glands. And I'm pretty sure that pistons don't have uh, internal organs. So the anodizing the top ring really came into vogue back in the early mid-90s in cup racing, mainly because um, in order to try to control the ring and ring flutter, um, the ring, the vertical clearance of the ring got tighter and tighter. And to a point where it started wanting to transfer aluminum onto the ring, what we call ring welding. And it happens in each lateral gas port because when you machine the gas port into the top of the piston, I don't know if you can see that quite right, but you're basically machining a half a hole into a ledge. So it's a little bit precarious to do because um, since you're only machining half a hole, it wants to steer the tool. So you got to go slow. And then the tool is turning clockwise. So it wants to hang a burr into the roof of the groove on the three o'clock side, if you're looking at it. And the small the rings get, ring groups get, and today there's rings that are as small as 20 thousandths vertical by 85 radial. And so it's very hard to get in there and deburr the, those burrs out of the gas port. So um, the anodizing of the ring groove was a good band, has been a good band-aid since the 90s. Uh, the one issue I have is the more anodized you put in a ring groove, anodized grows kind of like sea monkeys, like that old toy you had when you were a kid, you put the powder in the tank and it would rise up these little mountains and teeth on. So unfortunately it kills the surface finish of the ring groove and it's a very hard surface and steel rings are the mainstay today and they're very hard. So it takes much longer for the ring and the ring groove floor and roof to lap in and have them, uh, you know, optimum seal so that the ring pulls better on the intake stroke and seals better in the power stroke. So, um, you know, if it's a, a pro, uh, extreme pro mod pist piston with six units on it, it probably won't miss, you know, the five or 10 horsepower that's missing from rings. If it's a, a nine to one limited induction circle track motor or an NHRA stock eliminator motor, it's, it ain't worth it because number one, that engine is going to run for such a short time, it'll never see any situation that's going to cause uh, ring welding. And uh, it won't pull on the intake stroke and seal as good on the exhaust stroke, you know, until the motor's pr practically wore out because it's going to take so much time to, to do that. So, uh, so it's a long, a long answer. I really wish somebody would come up with a, a ring coating that would 
replace anodized ring group because although it's it's a decent band-aid, it's not a perfect solution to keep rings from welding, but it's the one that's been used for some time and it's it's fairly expensive and tedious to do, especially if you're doing just a ring group. If you do the whole piston, which is fairly popular in power adder racing, it's not that big of a deal because you don't have to mask the whole rest of the piston to keep the anodized from bleeding into the rest of the party. And what is the difference in, in getting just the groove anodized versus not, you know, when we're starting to talk about cost and things to uh, the end user? It's 50, 60 bucks a piston easy compared to maybe 20 to have the whole piston. Going. Wow. Um, which sort of on that topic a little bit, or you mentioned the, the deburring, um, I have a question in the chat. How important is hand deburring or blending the piston tops to help prevent hot spots? Well, funny enough, you've actually, and a lot of, applications we put a rough finish on i don't know if you can really see that or not it's um instead of having the tool path uh the tool will go across the deck of the piston or the dome every five thousands we usually call a thirty thousand step so it leaves kind of a rough textured fin uh, finish on the decks the dishes and the domes and uh, we believe and we found that to help uh, air fuel atomization much to uh, disbelief of some guys that think these little ridges might cause um, hot spots. So and it, it really is specific to the engine. Um, uh, like low compression, uh, blown marine engines uh, with, you know, typical 24 degree uh, big block Charvies that have about 118, 126 chamber and they're kind of big and lazy. So some of those ridges actually help. Um, as far as the, I mean, this piston's got a couple, it's got some pretty good uh, scallops on it. And we just do a light deburr. Uh, if it was my person, yeah, I'd go into the sand roll and tune it up a little bit. But um, I don't think it's as big a thing as some people, uh, some guys might think. Um, power adder motors, maybe a little bit more so, but um, too often those, you, you can end up with a lot of piston damage from really no more than way too rich of an air fuel mixture, other than a little sharp spot here and there. Matt, how about you? You uh, you have anything to add to that, either from the anodizing or the deburring, based on your experience? Well, I don't know if you guys can see this. I got the top of one here, and you can see, I don't know, the outer oh, is the outer part of this is textured, and then the inside is kind of a involuted angle. But that this area out here where it's textured, that that definitely, I, I know Rick can back that up where he's had some customers with low speed pre-ignition issues in marina or boats, you know, that were idling real low going through a marina that would have low speed pre-ignition issues because of, you know, some wet, you know, chambers that were just oiled up from low speed carbureted engines that definitely livened them up, putting some texture in the dome or in the crown of the piston. Kind of kept things active at low speed, I guess you could say. Interesting. All right. I have another question from the chat. And again, if you have a question, just use the chat feature and you can type one in and uh, we'll ask it of our panelists here. Uh, the next question is, how important is the clearance between the side clearance between rod and piston on the mall end and rod and crank on the bid end? I note the Carrillo rods have more clearance than stock rods at both ends. I run a Triumph TR4A. Uh, it probably means a small end, I think, but um, 
It depends on how much offset is on the. In fact, let's let Matt talk about that because he's done piston piston guided uh, piston rod assemblies in the past days. Yeah, um, the the side clearance between the big ends of the rods, like the, the stuff that I've worked on, at least it doesn't really seem to affect a whole lot. And some of our piston guided stuff, like uh, let's see, this one here, this this one had about uh, two hundred thousandths of side clearance on the crank. Um, just from being piston guided and up up on the small end it's got about four thousandths or there's no there's no clearance up there it just the, the rod is centered on the crank pin by the piston the ellipse of the piston and so that kind of combination once you get everything ironed out in a in an engine and you can get to that combination you can really start working on them and kind of lightening the piston and connecting rod package up but the side clearance, um, most even import engines I've seen have all been around 25, 20 thousandths on side clearance connecting rods. Um, some of them have been tightened up like the old Fords were I have what, nine to 10. But um, anymore, the side clearance seems to have increased with the factory stuff. Um, I, I know the LS stuff is probably still around 22, but um, I, I've known a lot of guys have talked about increasing the side clearance of the rods and losing oil pressure, which doesn't seem to be the case with the piston guided stuff. I don't know if anyone would ever be able to worry about that. As far as the rod goes, um, again, because of years of development, the small end width has gotten narrow and narrower because we've learned that we can get away with that. And that makes the rod lighter. So that's one of the places the rod designers will go after the weight is on the small end. And if it's a brand new build, um, even some of our old shelf rods were an inch of 60 wide and now they're like 990 to 100 because we've learned over time through FEA analysis and real world uh, situations that we can get away with that. So, um, and as time goes on, we have a bigger and bigger um, uh, inventory of 40s to choose from. We've got 40s with very narrow pin boss bands where we can go in there and machine the needed clearance. And then others that are they're as forged and you know they're already uh, for lack of a better term maybe wider than the customer really is going to need for his application so we'll use one of our later model pistons and, and uh, um, design them around the width of the small one it's always a good thing to know and on our order sheet it actually there's a spot that says um i got one there's a rod width tap and b so that's one of our questions we have on uh, custom rod orders. It's how wide is the rod so we can design the piston around. Um, I, just, I think any I just more on, on conventional NA stuff, what do you, 35 to 50 per side is plenty. Uh, most of comp eliminator, comp, comp eliminator pro stock uh, and even the circle track stuff we do, uh, it's 80 total, so 40 per side and small, if it's not piston good. Matt, you want to add to that? Uh, that was just, no, that's fine. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure, you know, I was going to actually ask you guys about um, uh, different materials and everything and, and where things apply. And we actually have a question from the chat and it says, referring back to Rick's story about the weight of components, not necessarily affecting the acceleration of the engine on a NA max effort engine, what would be the benefit of aluminum rods? Well, uh, I don't, the only, tr truthfully to me personally, the benefit of aluminum rod is if and when it fails, 
it doesn't chew as much as the engine is. If a steel rod fails, it's pretty much going to buzzsaw most of the engine. Fairly unlikely you're going to be able to save enough to rebuild the engine. Um, I'm sure Matt has a better opinion on, on uh, acceleration, especially in pro stock stuff. But funny enough, over the last 20 years, there's only been uh, two different pro stock cars that I'm aware of that run on the rods. They've all gone to steel rods, um, probably back from the late 90s, uh, mainly because they could run the deck, the piston to deck clearance tighter, run less dome because they didn't have to make up for the piston being 20 thousandths in the hole. And uh, aluminum rods, to be able to survive in, in, in racing engines, what we call the, the strap thickness, this area here, and the whole rod has to be much uh, bigger and uh, beefier to live in the situation. So if, if you want to try to get the, the compression distance as short as possible, but the rod's 300,000 here, that rod's going to run into the underside of the piston sooner than a rod that's 180 to 200,000. So that was another benefit. And uh, to the best of my, well, the story I've been told is the first pro stock team, and I, I probably shouldn't say who it was, that went to steel rods. They went there so they could run a shorter deck, run a shorter compression height or pin height, as we call it. Put the motor together. They went to their, their home track. And as soon as they left the clutch out, it ran right through the clutch belt right through the clutch. In other words, that's, you know, the term, it slipped the clutch really bad in low gear. So everybody's scratching their head, looking back, and then suddenly, you know, the, the car owner was also the driver and one of the main tuners was like, aha, inertia, oh, friend. So in pro stock, as the bores have gotten bigger, the strokes have gotten smaller so that they can keep them under 500 inches. And since the strokes are getting have gotten smaller over years, the peak torque has gotten higher and higher and higher. So the inertia help has been a plus. And uh, an aluminum rod, typically in a pro stock engine, in Matt can correct, and I think 40 runs is about as long as they did running. Uh, a super series, you know, top dragster, maybe 70, 80 runs tops. The, our pro stock rod, they literally run, it all, run them all year long, send them back in for freshening and put them back in the engines again. So the steel rods are about twice the price of an aluminum rod but they're also an investment in my own opinion. And Matt's probably got something to say about that too. And my opinion is, is uh, aluminum rods have a lot of places, but a max effort NA engine is not one of them. <laughs> um, there are definitely benefits in big nitrous engines or big mountain motor engines where they've just got so much natural rod mass. Um, I know some, some guys run tie rods, but you can't get a, tie rod light enough in some of those things. So they, they have to ruin the aluminum rods. Um, steel rod, there's definitely some benefits and that's about the only thing that would live at the amount of G-forces that these parts see anymore for an extended period of time. I will say on the aluminum rod, um, some of the, a lot of the power guys like them because the rod is a bit of a shock absorber. You know, so it's, tends to make the crank stay in the block longer and keep the bearings a little bit more happy. In an engine like a fuel motor, um, the, when we first started making top fuel aluminum rods, uh, the first set went to my nephew, Richard Hartman, who's been, at that time, he was tuning Terry McMillan's car, and he's been with, um, I'm blanking out all of a sudden. Anyways, uh, when they ran the rods, he told me that our competitors, typically on the first hit, the rod would squash 
six to seven thousandths in length. And our rods only squash three thousandths. So to him, it was that much better. And then they call it uh, forking. So the fork part of the rod on a fuel motor, once the it gets bowed out enough that they can't just spin the rod bolts in by hand, it's a jump rod. And he said that our rods live that way twice as long. So they could get six to seven runs out of our aluminum rods versus, you know, three runs out of a competitor's rod. And um, one of those big reasons is our our connecting rods, the aluminum rods are also uh, forged. They're not billet, which same with our rods. Even the, the, the traditional Carrillo H-beam rods, I've heard them called billet rods for years. They're not billets. They're 100% machine forgings. And the reason we believe or it's proven that a forging is better is because billets are made out of extruded material. You, you've got the material matrix. They extrude it through you know, a tube and they come up with uh, a billet of material and that's it. On forged pistons and forged rods, that material is now hit with a die under extreme pressure and it moves all that material into shape and improves grain flow. So uh, unless somebody wants to school me, a forged rod, whether it's aluminum or steel, and a forged piston is always better than a billet piston. Uh, the benefit of billet parts is you can go from idea to design to test much quicker than you can with the forging because you have to, you have to design the dies that make the parts Go make the, the forging, get them in, critique them, then make the part where a billet, literally, you could go from design to the racetrack within a couple of days. And then if it's proven, like with our pro stock piston, we ran billets all year, uh, 2009 for the championship. And in 2010, we made the forging instead because it was much more cost effective for us to do. Another question just came in from the chat along those same lines then, is a forged piston more structurally stable than a billet? Yes, every time. In fact, um, we we uh, Rockwell test our pistons in batches. Uh, if it's something really trick like a comp motor, or if, if Matt says, "Hey, you know, can you Rockwell test this set of uh, dirt late model pistons?" We can do all eight of them. It's just it's not totally necessary. But typically, a forged piston will Rockwell in the B scale in the 77, 78, 79 range, high 70s. And a billet will typically rock well in the 73 to 75 range. And um, we've used billets in all forms of racing and had them, as, as Matt called it earlier, time out where the engine has run its expected um, usage time and take the pistons out and they're fine. Um, uh, say a 1400 horsepower, 632 uh, fast bracket motor. And after a couple of years, they would probably rock well in the low to mid 50s. Um, back in the SP2 Chevrolet and C3 D3 Ford era of uh, NASCAR racing, the Fords would typically rock well in the third, low 30s after a 500 mile race, and the Chevrolets in the 20s. And the record, we had a, a, a truck motor come back from Daytona that it's um, Rockwell 11. It basically was plastic because they make big power, but they're also trying to get fuel mileage. So they really lean on the AAF numbers. And you would expect to see a piston like that sunk and you know distorted and you know, it just looked like a good used piston, but they were definitely you know, extremely soft after that. All right, uh, we've got about five minutes left here with our panelists. I wanna ask another one from the chat. It says, would you use a steel rod over aluminum uh, in an LS engine package that's turning 8,800? using a Magnuson style power adder 
curious based on the NAPS statements. I'll let Matt take that because he's done some pretty neat work on some factory shootout LS motors. So he probably nobody knows better than he. Yeah, I would uh, I would use a steel rod over an aluminum rod in that application. Um, we were well those those NA or the I guess the Magnuson style supercharged engines. They're turning into the ten thousand range now with wet stumps, and they don't have uh, lick of issues with rod durability. Um, they might have bearing issues from oil getting there, but nothing to do with the rods. The steel rod, I probably wouldn't go to aluminum rod until you know the the rod length got above seven inches or something like that, where it was starting to get a pretty large, nearly a two two hundred rod journal and a a bigger pen for like a nitrous application or something. Um, I know there's those mountain motor pro stockers, they're pretty much all aluminum rods just from the mass. But yeah, and that application, a steel rod, is that would be that'd be my decision. Okay. Um, I do want to ask another question um, for you guys. Uh, uh, and, and I know this is probably one that we could spend the entire week talking about, but modern racing oils. Everyone's got a lot of opinions about oils, but you know, you guys are doing real world applications and true research. That is definitely your guy on that. <laughs> One of the reasons I asked uh, him to, if he'd do this with me. Well, what, where, where do you want to start on the race oil as far as, I guess I always, my biggest thing is I, I dyno for quite a few people up here and I get a lot of guys that come into the dyno shop that built their own engines in their garages and I was using a guy, an example, he had a set of CP, it was a 305 sprint car engine and he bought you know, CP rods and pistons and Corella rods and CP pistons and he brings it up and it's got Rotella engine oil in it, you know, Rotella 1540 diesel oil. And <laughs> why, you know, why do you have this engine that, you know, it's a race engine, why do you have streetcar engine or diesel engine oil in it? And it just, that's kind of one of my big things is if you have a race engine, put a good quality race oil and, you know, spend a little extra money. Don't put something in that's for diesel or high mileage street stuff, put, put race oil in. And how often would you recommend cycling that oil changing? You know, we changing it every race. We, what do you recommend? Um, like our, our stuff, like the pro stock, cars they'll change oil six to eight runs or if you go to the finals you always change it um like in our dirt sprint cars we'll change them two to three nights dirt late miles they carry a little more volume so they'll go four or five nights um that just kind of depends on how much contamination is getting in the oil and the oil testing is something that you can really keep an eye on that's became available to you know any engine builder now can do his own oil analysis from his house and understand exactly what he needs to work on. It's very easy to do that now. And then one final question from the chat here, because I know our time is a little bit short. Um, does viscosity of the oil have any effect on the desire piston to cylinder wall clearance? I haven't seen um, it myself, but Matt, I'm sure because he's building the engines and he's at the racetracks and he sees much more of the stuff come apart than I do. He's probably got a better opinion. It, it doesn't seem to, um, a thinner oil, I would say in, in a short lived application lubricates better, but, uh, there's also like the pro stock engines, they're above 20 inches of vacuum. So there isn't a whole lot of things in the atmosphere and they're moving around, but, uh, a thinner oil 
definitely seems to lubricate the top ring better. I don't know how much bearings, you know, extreme pressure a thinner oil has, but a thicker oil will protect longer than a thinner oil, but thinner will get there quicker. Which again comes to that whole compromise, right? Of trying to get <laughs> power and longevity and everything else. Um, well, Constant I do want to, what's that? I'm sorry. Constantly juggling that. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's the a balance. Yeah. Well, good. Well, I do want to remind uh, folks, if you're watching right now, uh, go to eparttrade.com. If you want to learn more about CP Carrillo, you can go to their product page. You can request more information, give them their information, and I'm sure they're going to be very happy to help you with that. Um, Rick, Matt, really can't thank you guys enough for participating here uh, this week and certainly learned a lot about um, what you guys have going on, especially having both of you compliment each other. So thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate you having us on. It was fun. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. And uh, thank you, Rick. And please send our best to Cindy at CP. Uh, Cindy is a dear friend of us, and she has helped us since day one. She was one of the first supporters of EPAR Trade. She actually saw the platform before it was a, a launch live. So, uh, and when she saw it, she said, this is revolutionary. I want to be part of it. So Cindy, uh, Cindy thank you for believing in us uh, back in May, 2018, uh, when we launched uh, May or June. And, uh, and we have had CP on the platforms ever since. So thank you guys. Registering on EPAR Trade is easy. Fill out your name, email, phone number, and create a secure password. Next, select your business type. Choose supplier if you're looking to display products or services and connect with buyers. Choose racing business if you're looking to find new parts and connect with suppliers. Choose race team if you own or are a member of a professional racing team. Begin typing your company name. We most likely already have your company in our database, which you can select from the drop-down. Then, enter your job title. Choose Claim Company if you'll be editing your company profile. Other members of your company can choose Join Company if they'd like to use ePartrade as well. You can view and agree to our terms of use here. If you'd like to receive our weekly newsletter, choose Accept. Click Register Now, and your registration will be submitted for approval. You'll need to confirm your email once it goes through. To keep our platform industry only, you'll be approved shortly after. If we require additional proof of business, we'll reach out. Welcome to ePartrade.